This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st hrn. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm, I'm Ethan Frisch, your, uh, your solo co-host this week. Uh, and my guest this week is Rob Dunn, professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University and author of the really fascinating new book, Delicious. Rob, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's great to talk with you, Ethan. I'm really excited about it. I, I just read your book. It it fit into a, a bigger uh, set of reading that I've been doing around the origins of flavor. You know, obviously having a spice company, it's something I think about a lot and, and uh, why people like certain things, why they like certain things and not other things, how, how the, uh, you know, how, how spices have played a role in, in human history and the development of, of certain cuisines. Um, and it, it felt like you had, it, it almost felt like you had written this for me. It just fit perfectly into this, this bigger uh, project that I'm working on to try to understand some of these questions. Um, would you would you talk through the kind of the origin story of the book, how you came to write it, and and why there really isn't another book like it? Uh, it, it seems like that's ever been written. Yeah, sure. I mean, there there may be sort of two origins, and one is how I I ended up in food um, apropos of the podcast, which is that I actually started off studying the ecology of tropical rainforests and sort of the general rules of ecology uh, ended up in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I kept studying that ecology. And I would give all these talks and, and people would ask questions at the end, like, you know, that's great, but how do I kill the ants in my kitchen? And eventually I would come to realize that that what that was, was a, a direct indication of something like the sentiment Thanks for your boring hour-long talk. The only possible way it's relevant to me is with regard to the ants in my kitchen. And, and so and eventually I would come to realize that there was this open niche that nobody was really telling people about the biology of their daily life. And so we would start in my lab to study the life in people's houses. And so that was microbes in houses, insects in houses. And so we, we were doing that work and we kept finding new species, new phenomena. And then we realized there was this subset of questions about the biology of houses that that people were always excited about, that, the, that they wanted to know about and they were happy about. And there were questions about food. And those questions, um, it turned out, were also often not very well explored. And for me personally, considering the biology of food was an excuse to, to link in many ways my interest in tropical forests and the ecology of the, the big world with this sort of daily interest of people in biology without really recognizing that what they're being interested in, in is biology. And so it was all those things around taste and flavor, but also sort of the microbiology of what lives in your fridge and the biology of what's in a sourdough bread or what's in a beer or where does the yeast originally come from uh, when you make a beer and all those sorts of things that that I've been working on now for the last five years or so in the lab. And as this was going on, my wife and I would, 
you know, we travel the world talking to people and my wife's an anthropologist and, and these food questions would come up and we would, because of our weird jobs, we'd have a chance to sit around the table with primatologists or Neanderthal specialists or, you know, winemakers. And when we did, there were all these things that they knew about the biology of food that nobody else knew. In the same way that Ethan, you know, you and I were just talking before the show about spices. And in about five minutes, I learned a couple of things from you about spices that I, I never knew before. And, and now I can go back and that's sort of part of how I think about spices. In that same way, every time we had these conversations, there were new things. And so there was this inkling that there was something missing and maybe we could pull it together. And that's, that's sort of the original sort of uh, ferment out of which the idea for a book on flavor and food and biology uh, came about. But, but then as we were starting to, to write about these sort of broad ideas, it became clear that there was a thread that united them again and again. And that, that thread was flavor. And what we recognized was that where our biology and the biology of our food intersect most intimately is with regard to the choices we make about flavor and that this had somehow been missed. And it's, I think it's missed because it's at the intersection of a whole bunch of fields. It's partially what chefs do. It's partially what neuroscientists do. It's partially what evolutionary biologists do. It's partially what anthropologists do. Um, but it's not wholly what anybody does. And so it was like the best excuse for a book ever because we then got to bring all these people together, often like actually eating while we were on a table, to bring these ideas together. And, and so that's sort of a long answer to your question. But, but it, it, this book is really many years uh, in, in development to get to the point where we realized, oh, this is about flavor. It's about deliciousness. It's about retelling the human story. And why do you think uh, nobody had ever pulled those threads together in this way before? What 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 was it about your approach or or this moment that that enabled it? I, you know, part of it is that some of the science is new. So, like, we've learned a lot more about neuroscience and smell in the last twenty years or even ten years than we ever knew before. Um, but part of it is also that. Uh, scientists and anthropologists, they, they tend to be trained more and more narrowly. And the question of flavor is really not a narrow question. It's a question where you need all these pieces together. And there weren't really opportunities where, you know, somebody who studies a, the basic biology of a chimpanzee was sitting down with a chef. And, and so it was like these the people just weren't sitting down together and there was no way for them to come together. Um, and so what we did was just to sort of pull these pieces uh, into a whole. And I would say, I mean, that's one of the things that, that we both really enjoy is connecting disparate ideas. And so it, it really felt like a great opportunity for us. I was also really struck by, um, you know, how how I hadn't thought of this before either, that the central premise of the book, and, and obviously correct me if I, if I miss anything, but the central premise of the book being that flavor and evolution have gone hand in hand, that, that we, they are not separate processes, that our evolution has been influenced by the way that things taste and the way that we perceive 
the taste of things has been influenced by our own evolution, which, which seems like such a, such a, as soon as you wrote it down, such an obvious, an obvious point, but, but not one that I had ever encountered before. Is that, do you feel, is that an accurate uh, summary of, of what you were trying to convey? Yeah. And I, and I, I think it is new in a sense. Um, It's new to evolutionary biologists. It's not new to chefs. Like if we talk to chefs about it, the, the response is like, of course, chimpanzees seek out delicious things. Like, why would they not? In a way, it's like that connection of those pieces that's totally new. And then it becomes super obvious. And it felt like, oh, could it really be this obvious? This, this big story of evolution and flavor. Um, but as we looked at it, it seemed as though it really was often so simple. And, and so just as an example, I mean, one of the big questions in thinking about our ancestors and chimps is when did they first start to use tools, but also why did they first start to use tools? And if you look at most of the answers in the literature, they tend to imagine that chimps are like robots and that our ancestors are like robots, and they just went and found their optimal diets. But what seemed to have been totally missed was that the way that they choose those diets is that they choose things that they prefer the flavor of. And so once we said that, the the chimpanzee researchers were all like, oh, yeah, no doubt that's true, but that's just not the way we would ask the question. And so we found this again and again that like it wasn't that people disagreed with this simple idea of the book. It's just not the way they would ask the question. Uh, And so that in and of itself was fascinating. Um, But but it was great for us because it meant there were these sort of discoveries in plain view. Did you do you feel like you you got to an answer in the sort of um, whether flavor came first or preferences came first? Or uh, were we optimized to enjoy, or did we evolve to enjoy the taste of things that were good for us, or uh, were were we always enticed by those flavors and and pursued them and evolved to to be able to absorb those nutrients or, or uh, eat well off of those foods? I think it's it's a mix. So. Uh, we need to probably divide up flavor into its pieces. And so one piece is taste. And taste is like salty, sweet, umami, uh, sour, all of these things that are tongue detects. And those tastes are really ancient. And and they evolve for no reason other than to lead us to the things we tend to need and lead us away from the things that tend to be dangerous. And so that's an taste is really ancient and evolves slowly. And, and so you can, in some ways, if you're thinking of a particular species, it's, it's as though it's already there. It's the template that frames how the world is experienced. But then the other part of another really important part of flavor is smell. And smell is totally different because smell is sort of a blank slate. As far as neuroscientists know, there are no smells that are intrinsically more attractive or less attractive to humans. They're all learned. And so smell is this component where it allows us to, to each generation, learn which things we, sh- we should like and dislike as, as a function of uh, how they make us feel, uh, whether they make us sick, all of these sorts of things. And so then the composite flavor has this taste component that's really intrinsic and you know, more or less going to be the same for you and for me, Ethan, and for most other folks. 
And then there's the smell component, which is very much learned. And, and so those then come together to, to shape how any human or any other animal uh, feels about a particular food that it encounters. And, and so in a way, it's a system that allows animals to respond to their ancient needs, but to do so in a way that kind of has the potential to update a little bit if the world around them changes. And so it's, it's a pretty uh, impressive system. And, and our ability to ass assess flavor is in some ways um, more sophisticated than, than probably any other species, in part because the way in which we smell foods is largely in our mouths. And so if you think about a dog smelling the world, it smells the things in front of it. And, and we smell things like that, too. Think about the smell of bread rising up to your nose. But we also smell things once they're in our mouths. And the weird biology of our heads means that we're better than, at that than other species. And so we really have this sense of flavor that's, that's much more holistic than most other species. And, and so that then, when we confront the world, is what shapes each one of those decisions we're making about foods or that our ancestors made. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a pretty cool evolutionary system. Yeah. That, that, is that the retronasal? Am I, am I remembering that term correctly? Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it's like the most beautiful component of flavor and scientists decided that needed the name retronasal, which just, <laughs> it says beauty. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the, one of the other things that, that stuck out to me from that part of the book was that um, those five flavors that we know, sweet, salty, umami, sour, uh, whatever other one I'm forgetting, that there may also be others, other taste receptors on our tongues that, that haven't been studied or that, that we don't recognize in, in the same way. Could you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, so this is super fascinating. So the, there's, a, there's a sensory center called the Manel Sensory Center, and they've done a ton of the work on taste, really an amazing place. It's just like taste world. And researchers there, including Mike Tordoff, have, have spent the last uh, decades looking for essentially missing tastes. And they've begun to discover them. And so, for example, Tordoff has, has studied calcium taste and phosphorus taste. And if you were trying to figure out which tastes we should have, given which things tend to be rare in our diet, you would predict we should be able to taste calcium and phosphorus because they're often rarer in a human diet, an average primate diet, than what we need. And, and Toroff has find, found that mammals, um, at least some mammals, do appear to have special taste receptors for calcium and phosphorus. But what he doesn't know is what that tastes like. And, and so there's this kind of weird mystery that there is a sensor. It seems to be important. Um, we seem to have it, but he can't quite match up those taste receptors with the actual experience of the taste. And we also have the opposite. And so uh, in Japan, there's a, a flavor, and here I'm using the, the word specifically, called koku, and and then there's a and it's it's a flavor that corresponds to like the long lastingness of food and so if a food food has koku if it hangs around in your mouth it feels rich and it coats the mouth and in the last let's see thirty years it started to be argued that part of koku is actually a taste and that th there is this additional taste called kokumi 
that f- features uh, in some foods, like some soups and in some spices, and that maybe that's why we like garlic and onions so much. And so this one's coming from the opposite direction, wh- where uh, traditional culture and some chefs thinks that the, think that the taste exists, but sensory scientists don't have a matching receptor that totally would make sense given that taste. And, and so there are these two kinds of mysteries lurking in the mouth. And when you talk to people who study these things, they all seem to think there are other tastes too that are going to be discovered and we just haven't discovered them yet. And then the other part about this is that as we've studied different mammals, different mammals also have different taste uh, receptors. And so mice can taste particular amino acids. And so it's this whole sort of taste world that we've just barely begun to to pick apart. Um, And to me, it's just absolutely remarkable because, you know, it's it's a set of mysteries that are literally in our face. I mean, they they feature in our daily experience of the world every day. How could we not know if we have other uh, taste receptors or other tastes? And yet that's where we are. So, I mean, it's a fascinating point to think about, first of all, how many different flavors there might be and different species of mammals that might taste things differently, but then also, right, how, how this has been overlooked for so long, something that every human experiences many times a day uh, has just been been ignored. Um, is there, I don't know, like what, what needs to happen for there to be more, more in-depth study into these, into the questions of how we experience different flavors? Part of what's needed to happen and is starting to happen is that we need to understand which genes are responsible for a particular kind of receptor. And once we know those genes, then we can study how that receptor has evolved. And so for umami taste receptors, for example, we know the proteins that the genes make, and we can look for those genes in different people. Um, we see which versions there are, and we can compare them from species to species. And, and suddenly, when, once you know the genes, then a lots, lots of kinds of comparison become possible. You can actually take the genes, you can put them into a, you know, different microbe species, you can grow them in the lab, you can see how they respond to different things. And so all the mad, the sort of genetic magic is possible once you have the genes. But for a lot of these receptors, we don't really know the, the genes very well yet. And sour is a good example. So sour taste receptors, um, people have fought for decades now about what the receptor is. Um, and just in the last couple of years, Emily Lyman seems, Lehman seems to have found what looks like the gene for the sour taste receptor. And so that would allow people to do all, many new kinds of studies, uh, or at least that was the hope. But it turns out that the gene that we think is associated with the sour taste receptor also does other things in the body. And so you, you can't study it in the same way because it might be different from one species to another, one person to another for reasons that have nothing to do with sour taste. And so it's this kind of like step-by-step step, step figuring out enough pieces of these receptors to, to make the story make sense. Um, but, but I also think, uh, you know, it's not quite, it's just not been a very central field. And, and, and so it's, you know, it's not like the, the study of the tongue and the taste receptor receptors has received huge amounts of, of uh, money from the National Institutes of Health or something. 
And, and so it doesn't have this, the total amount of money people are spending on doing these kinds of studies is small. And then the other piece is that the people who would study the receptors are not the people who would necessarily be interested in, in cultural differences in foods from one place to another. And, and so might not be interested in figuring out, well, how does sour taste work differently in Inuit populations relative to um, populations living in, in Brazil? And, and so the pieces aren't, aren't together. And with, with other parts of the body, um, we've started to see those pieces come together. And so like one interesting example in that context is the study of uh, how people as adults digest milk. And so it used to be thought that, and this is kind of an aside, that all, all adults could digest milk and not being able to digest milk was a deficiency. And only in the last couple of decades did people begin to realize that, oh, being able to digest milk as an adult is a weird thing uh, for a mammal. Milk is baby food. And, and so then they started to study how that differs from population to population and figured out that the ability to digest milk as an adult has evolved many times in association with populations that depend on cows and other milk producing mammals. And then there was a separate connection uh, wherein people realized, oh, there are populations that drink milk as adults that don't have these genes what are they doing? And it came to be realized that you could also digest milk as an adult if it was fermented or if you had specific gut microbes. And so those pieces came together bit by bit. And now we're starting to see a bigger picture of milk and digestion and and who likes milk and who doesn't and why. And so I, th I think that the same sorts of things are ultimately going to need to happen with taste, that the people who study the genetics need to pull together pieces with the people who study uh, different cultures and food choices. And that then needs to be coupled with sort of people who study food preparation. And we're just a long way from that. But if you were, if someone is out there and is an ambitious graduate student, it, it is very achievable. It's just not how people tend to do it. And, and so I think that's the exciting part that it, it wouldn't take a thousand people studying these things to make major discoveries. It, it would take about eight uh, to massively advance our understanding. That doesn't seem like very many. That seems, uh, it seems pretty doable. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have to like totally obs obsessively dedicate their life to calcium taste receptors and, and traveling the world to understand them. Uh, but, but it's achievable. Well, you travel the world and eat cheese, I guess. That's not, uh, not the worst, not the worst job. Yeah, no, that, that's good. I mean, some days that sort of resembles my job, and it is a good job. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest-growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. 
For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. It's, it's interesting that you bring up sour taste in particular, because I had wanted to ask about that and especially connected to uh, kind of different cultural preferences in food. Uh, and, uh, you know, to my very unscientific study of, of the ways that different cultures uh, eat, sour seems to be more divisive than other flavors, that there are certain cuisines that love sour ingredients and sour flavors, and it, it appears in almost every dish they eat. And there are other cuisines where, where it uh, is really not, just doesn't play that same role. So I guess the, the bigger question is, is what influences that? What's the interaction between tasting certain things and then the cultural context in which they exist or, or develop? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, so part of it has to do with smell and, and, and this contribution that smell makes to flavor. Um, and so if you think about like fermented foods, and so fermented foods are often sour. They often also have really strong uh, aromas that if you're not used to them are often off-putting. And, and and so the, where smell comes in there is that we can learn to love uh, almost any smell and maybe even any smell. And it happens very early. And so studies that we describe in the book have shown that in utero, that the smells that babies experience um, via their mother's food that, that tra- and those aromas travel through the amniotic fluid, that any of those smells the babies are exposed to that when they're born, they like those smells, that from the baby's perspective, they're positive. And so this is true for blue cheese, it's true for fermented fish, uh, vegetables, anise. And the thinking around this is that this is this sort of first window in which babies can be taught, this is what we eat, this is what our people eat. And so anything that mom eats is taught to babies by the body to, to be a nice flavor. And, and so there's this sort of very early training. And then that learning continues to happen after you're born. And it kind of, it's kind of like a Yelp system, uh, like the Yelp scores for restaurants, where the more often the memories you have associated with a particular aroma are good memories the better the score of that aroma. 
And so you can imagine that if, if you grew up in a place where your mom is eating fermented foods that are sour and have these particular aromas, you're born uh, with a tendency to like them. And then when you get together with your family and you're happy and you're laughing, you eat more of those same foods. And so the preference for those aromas and the flavors that they're part of get reinforced. And, and then as, as you get older, this, this continues to happen. And, and, and so if you live in a small community that doesn't, you know, and you don't travel very much, the, the things that you like with regard to flavor are very likely to be the same as the things that other people in your community like. And so it's this way in which culture and preferences and food preferences are really reinforced very strongly and can, can lead to very different preferences in different places. Um, and then that then manifests in what we think of as, as normal, as pleasing in our communities. And I think the negative side of this is that when two cultures interact, there's very often, historically, there were, there were, very, were very often these sort of disgust responses. Like what you love is gross. And, and those that have, have played a terrible role in many interactions between cultures, but they're part of this learning component of flavor that I think is very important. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, especially in, in sort of the, the world of food marketing, which I spent a lot of time in, uh, right? Food has this this halo, you know, everybody eats, everybody can break bread together and and share a meal. But but more often than not, especially in, in my experience of traveling and, and spending time with people with different food preferences and, and cultures and backgrounds than my own, people, food, food can often be very divisive. And, and the things that one person loves uh, might be really off-putting to somebody else. Um, is there, what's the, what's the, I guess, what's the solution to that? Yeah, or I think that's a great question. So, and I think it happens all the time. And so you can think about the example of kimchi. And, and so I've, I've had a number of Korean American students who report that when they were growing up and they would bring kimchi, which, which is fermented cabbage and radish and sp spicy and has been incredibly um, interesting microbial aromas, uh, that when they were growing up, that it was, uh, they were teased about it, that the smells of kimchi were smells that would, would make other kids uh, sort of marginalize them. And that in the years since their childhood, kimchi has become a hip food in the U.S. And, and so now the same food that got them marginalized as kids is a food that people view as kind of a, I mean, almost a prestige food, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's a wonderful kimchi. And, and buried in that story is, is the reality that at some point, people who weren't exposed to kimchi as kids were trying it and, and coming to learn to like it. And, and so I think what we need to recognize is that we have the capacity to learn to like many kinds of food. And, and so to actively to try them and to, to recognize the initial smell, the initial flavor we experience of a food might not be the end of the story. That as we, we learn to appreciate a food that our perspective on it can change radically. Um, and sh chefs talk about this and talking about like the palate changing, you know, and so I'm in Denmark right now and what people in Copenhagen would want to eat 30 years ago uh, is very different from what they want to eat today. 
And so what a chef can provide to a, somebody at a table is very different because the collective palate has changed. And that palate has changed via these learning processes. And so I think if we're aware of the, those processes, um, you know, we can challenge our palate. We can, we can you know, see which things we come to enjoy and which things we, we don't come to enjoy, but also recognize that even our strongest responses to particular foods might say more about us than they necessarily say about the food. Yeah, it does get easier. I, I, I guess it is easier to demonize the food rather than demonize our own palates and say, uh, you know, like the food tastes bad instead of I'm I'm understanding this incorrectly when when really that's that's the truth, right? That we we should be understanding the flavor differently and and better in order to appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that that's the world I would hope for. <laughs> it's is a is a world where we we come to appreciate a, more kinds of aromas and food, more kinds of flavors. And, and we, we come to find ways to appreciate the flavors and aromas of our neighbors' foods, um, which don't have to be our favorite aromas and flavors, but that we can appreciate their richness, their particularity. We can, we can have those aromas and flavors remind us of our friends from, from those cultures and those places. I mean, when, when you first uh, were in Afghanistan, what, what was your food interaction like? And what who, what were the interactions you had with the people that you met with regard to your own food? What was that coming together like? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, first of all, the way that meat tastes, and I think this is true in a lot of places, is very different in Afghanistan than what I was used to, and especially uh, eating mutton, you know, adult sheep meat, which is, which is the primary meat that people will eat. It, it has a very intense flavor that, that was challenging at first, but that I now, you know, I, I came to love and now look back on with a lot of nostalgia. Um, yeah, all of the, I mean, and, and sour flavors too. I mean, uh, spending time in the Middle East and eating Middle Eastern food for the first, or, you know, for early, early process of, of starting to understand Middle Eastern food, where there's a lot of uh, citrus juices and pomegranate and sumac and um, flavors that that are not, at least in my you know New York City Jewish upbringing, not generally perceived as as particularly savory, but but they that's how they're used in Levantine cooking. Um, that was definitely a process of education f for me to to come to appreciate them and and understand them as savory rather than sweet. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's so it's so fascinating. I also wanted to ask about the flip side of that. Uh, which you write about a little bit in the book, uh, the extinct flavors, the things that that our ancestors loved that we will never get to taste. Um, you know, you, you, I think if I'm remembering this correctly, you write specifically about mammoth feet as being a, a, a delicacy. Could you just talk a little bit about uh, the those those early flavors that that humans would have eaten that we don't taste now, and, and maybe a little bit about the contributions that humans made to to the extinctions uh, of those of those animals. Yeah, so, so or, as we imagine the, the sort of food transitions of our ancestors, one of the big transitions was 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 toward eating a lot of meat, which is relatively late in our evolutionary story, but there was this transition. And in the standard telling of that story, our ancestors just hunted willy-nilly and, and brought back whatever meat was available. But but it doesn't take much imagination to think, well, you know, if you're a family and, and the husband or the wife goes out hunting and comes back, 
you're going to be more excited about some meats than others, right? <laughs> so you will be very aware of which animals taste bad and which animals taste less bad. And, and so we spend a while in the book thinking about what do we know about the biology of meat and, and how good would the different meats that our ancestors um, and relatives in different parts of the world ate have been? And would finding delicious meat have figured into choices? And one of the things we, we found, I'll just succinctly summarize here, and you can go to the book for more on this, is that there's a fair amount of evidence that elephants and their relatives, so mastodons, mammoths, would have been delicious. And why this is interesting is sort of twofold. And, and one is that I, I think it's just interesting to ponder that experience of eating a delicious meat that our ancestors might have had. You know, think about early humans, think about Neanderthals, think about the first peoples in the Americas. Um, just to put them beside a fire eating something that they find deeply pleasurable. That's, that's intriguing to me. But the other reason that it's interesting is that those things that, that seem to have been the most delicious uh, then went extinct. And so there's a long, long uh, standing uh, literature considering the contribution of our ancestors and, and humans in general to the extinction of big uh, mammals. And, and the summary is that some of these big mammals were, were for sure extinguished by our ancestors. Others, their extinction was contributed to by our ancestors. And in some cases, some of these big mammals went extinct with, without too much human intervention. But it seems like some of the things that were most likely to go extinct, like mastodons and mammoths, were also the things that were most um, likely to be regarded as flavorful. And the, the feet part of the story is that in ethnographic reports of people eating elephants, that what comes up again and again is that the elephant feet were delicious, that they have the same kind of pads, toe pads that, that pigs have. And so if you think about, um, you know, a roasted pig foot and vinegar, think about the elephant version of that or the mastodon or mammoth version of it. And this is, you know, sort of an intriguing just so story in some ways with regard to our ancestors but what we, we do see is that there are paleoanthropological sites where the feet of mastodons or mammoths appear to have been treated differently than the rest of the body. And, and so it, it does seem plausible that they were hunting these giant beasts because they tasted so good. And then they were eating the tastiest parts of them because they loved them. And, you know, in the, in the book, we, we make this argument uh, very lightly because uh, it's hard to test but our broader argument is that, you know, our, our ancestors, they would have valued flavor. And, and to imagine that they didn't is to sort of suck the humanity out of them. Uh, because how can you think about the, the food that you bring in without thinking about the flavor? How can you eat something without knowing if it's better or worse than what you ate the day before? And, and so it, that must be part of what they were doing. And I know you said succinct. That wasn't so succinct. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's such a fascinating topic. And that leads me to my, my final question before we wrap up the interview, which, which has to do with that 
uh, kind of variety in the evolution of the human diet. Obviously, we're omnivores and we can eat all kinds of things, but but it's so interesting that we choose to eat so many different things and and experience so many different flavors. Um, could you just talk a little bit about uh, maybe the evolutionary or biological reasons for that or, or how we develop to appreciate so much variety in our, our day-to-day food? Sure. So, so the... You know, often people wanted to think about like, well, what was a paleo diet like for our ancestors? And what paleoanthropologists would tell you is that the defining feature of the of human paleo diets is that they varied from place to place, from time to time. And that variation is partially due to what's available in a particular environment. Uh, you know, you don't eat rainforest species when you live in the tundra. But it's it also clearly and very early related to cultural differences. And and so flavors were a key part of how our ancestors' cultures diverged very early on. And so they had they had cuisines hundreds of thousands of years ago. And so if you think about Neanderthals, Neanderthals occupied an enormous range from what is now Israel all the way to Spain and then uh, north and east. And in, in some places, they ate rabbits. In some places, they turned tortoises upside down and roasted them. In some places, they seemed to have eaten berries. In some places, they ate only giant species. And to some extent, that's because of the differences in where they lived. But it's also clearly to do with just what a local group of Neanderthals did. And, and this seems to be true throughout our human story. And so this cultural divergence, this separation among groups of, of individuals with regard to what they love to eat. It's, it's just this repeating part of who we are. And it's, it's part of our great flowering in, in some ways. And, and so as you look around the world today and you look at all the different cuisines and you think about spice use, I mean, spice use we haven't talked about, but it's magical. Yeah. And, and one of the great things that allows cuisines to become different um, and, and you, you see all of these food ways. I mean, that's a reflection of the great flowering of human culture in, in which flavor was not sort of some secondary thing. It's not like culture, cultures diverged and, and then by the way, flavor also diverged. Uh, what we argue in the book is that flavor was always central to those differences. It was always a key part of what was happening. And, and so I, I think to me, when I, when I, you know, have the chance to try a new food, it's like I'm sampling a part of this great human story of flowering and history and a story that stretches, you know, as far back as we can imagine. And 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 so it's it's a really beautiful part of, of who we are. And, and so to bring that back around to spices, th- then to be able to think about spices from around the world, you know, each of which is used in a different way and can be same spices used in different ways in different cultures, that, that they're this very concrete part of that diversification. Because as far as we know, 14,000 years ago, no humans use spices, you know, and probably that date will get pushed back, but that's what we know as of today. And between 14,000 years ago and today, all of the spices that you encounter in this store and thousands of spices you'd never see in this store, all were sort of captured from nature by humans in order to modify foods in some way. And what a beautiful sort of uh, artistic 
way to reimagine what it is we eat. Yeah, yeah, and incredible how quickly they spread. How how a spice that one culture or, or cuisine came to love then uh, so quickly became adopted in other other parts of the world, places that that spice would never grow or would never appear in nature. Um, it's it's the the human history of the spice trade is just fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And in every every spice, if you if you follow its story just a little bit, you find both mysteries and great drama. Um, and all of which is played out often in very recent uh, time periods. Yeah, yeah. Um, should we do a, a few rapid fire fun questions before we uh, wrap up? Are you yeah, ready? go for it. Uh, so let's start off with the the vegetable question. <laughs> do you uh, is do, is there a vegetable that you identify with and and why? I, I mean, I like alliums. I don't know if I identify with alliums. That seems like a dangerous thing because they're stinky, you know, garlics and onions. But uh, there's there's something amazing about them and that they're used in, in around yeah I'll just go with that garlics and onions and and you you read about a dish in the book right that showing that the ways that alliums have uh, prevent prevented microbial growth in cooking meat right so there's a I don't know there's some some power there some uh... yeah they're powerful they can make us cry uh, but they can also please us yeah um, what about uh, 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 your favorite kitchen tool, your desert island kitchen tool. What do you what do you bring with you to the desert island? A desert island. Well, do I have the garlic? And then I would take a garlic press. Yeah, you have um, you have any ingredient you can imagine. I mean, it's a tropical desert island, so you just get anything you want. Well, I mean, the the we spend a lot of time in other people's Airbnbs, and so one of the tool the garlic press is a tool that when it's there, it's deeply pleasing, and when it's absent, it's kind of it's, makes me sad. Um, a nice sharp knife is nice. Uh, you know, there's a reason that when once our ancestors could make sharp knives, that it transformed what they could eat. Um, so I think it could be an old stone knife. It could be a, uh, a brand new shiny knife, but a sharp knife. Nothing, nothing too fancy. Yeah, that's a good one. I like the stone knife uh, connection that um, we should all uh, learn to cook with stone knives again, I guess. Um, what uh, is, is there a dish that you came across in your research for the book that that is universally delicious that that or or if, um i guess an, an ingredient maybe that that everybody loves uh, i mean i'm going back to the the first thing but garlics and onions seem to be so independently cultures around the world have found garlics and onions and have come to use them and this is true both for cultures in cold places and even in rainforests and so there's there are plants that are not related to garlics and and onions, but that produce the same chemicals. And people living in the Congo have found those same plants and used them. And so things with garlic and on like a stew with meat and garlic and onion, that's very, very common. You know, and, and roasty meat dishes are super common. What does everybody like? I think fermented, particular fermented foods are the things that are most disliked from one group to another. Like, you know, you you can the same people who love a stinky French cheese might not like an you know a fermented auk. So, so I think fermentations divide us, and garlics unite us. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's a great note to end on. Uh, Rob, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Um, where can our listeners find out more about your work and uh, pick up a copy of the book? Uh, so they can go to Rob Dunlab and they'll see more about my work. Uh, they can go to the Princeton website and find the book. 
and I probably shouldn't say it in the podcast, but I'll go ahead and say it. If they enter my last name on the Princeton site when they when they go uh, to buy the book, they get a 30% discount. So just D-U-N-N. That's, uh, that's pretty good. Um, thanks to uh, Armin Spengen, our amazing sound engineer. Thanks to uh, the Red Crickets for our theme song, which is called Blind. You can reach us uh, by email, uh, yfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can follow us on social at Y Food Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you can reach Valerie, my co-host, on Instagram, at Foodie in New York. And most of all, Rob, thank you so much for joining me and for writing this fascinating book. It's been such a pleasure to, to get a little taste, sorry, I couldn't resist, of, uh, of your work and, and all of the complexity and history behind it. Uh, it's, it's great talking to you, Ethan. Thank you so much. Thanks. Talk to you all next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.